Hi everyone and welcome to Philosophy Rekindled with our focus book, the 1920 published version of Tertium Organum by P.D. Ospensky. Today we are discussing chapter 13 and we will be covering this chapter in three parts over separate podcasts. This is part three. You will find the audio version of this chapter as an additional audio to this podcast and you'll also find additional information on our website philosophyrekindled.com. Today my guest is Peter Lancet, hypnotherapist, author and classic scholar, and I'm Alice Flanagan, fiction author, computer programmer and podcaster. Thanks so much for joining us, and welcome Pete. So here's where we left off. Now you've got the data to see how you can control the world. You can control the world by by doing it. Let's move on very to the next bit, because um, I want to get to karma. I know you do. I can see it. I can see it on my page. Well, let's go straight there. Okay, well, I just want to make one point, one point to back okay. you up with your, your scientists. It says, once the positivists realise that there's no more than just the material, they began to notice other things. Um, uh, let me just read this. We observe such transitions of the invisible into the visible in the personal life of man, in the life of peoples, and in the history of humanity. These chains of events go on continuously, interweaving among themselves, entering one into another, sometimes hidden from our eyes and sometimes visible. So his last point before he gets to, to karma, and this is he's, he's building this concept of these chains interweaving and being part of some enormous mass of chains of phenomena, but appearing from visible into invisible. And this leads us on to this concept of, of karma because it's saying that, um, you know, if they're, they're just continuous chains going from infinity, infinity into infinity and they're all interweaving, that there is no concept of time. Everything is happening, everything is, is kind of bolted on to other things as opposed to things happening in time. And he goes on to explain how this explains karma. We, we think karma is something where you do something here and at some point later in time, the consequence comes back at you. No, no, we don't. No, we don't. That's what the masses think. And the masses have been fooled into thinking that about something that's not that at all. Karma is not that at all. And that's what I, I certainly don't think it. Yeah, go on. Yeah, which is where, where he's coming from. He's saying it's not linked to time. No, I mean, I, re- I really take umbrage about this idea of the idea of it comes back to bite you. This is the mass concept of karma. It is about cause and effect. Karma is about cause and effect. It's not about punishment. You know, when I see no. this, again, again, the idiotic masses on social media, <sighs> I don't take revenge, I just sit back and watch karma bitchy thing and and that by the way that's a representative of what the and i mean vast majority in the so-called developed world think karma is and that's what they believe and it's not karma is about cause and effect but in in essence Mm. um the point i was making is that we feel that the cause happened in a point in time here and the effect comes later but uh, that's not. This, this is where Spensky is saying no. That's well, the not effect doesn't have to it. come back. The effect, the effect doesn't have to come back to the cause. For example, for example, um, I can kick somebody's wall down. There will be a chain of effects that happen about that that might not come back to me if, if nobody ever finds out it's me that did it. Yeah. What I what I've caused will happen 
elsewhere in the continuum. Yeah. It might. The effects could be that the person who ha- owned the wall had to build it and pay for it themselves and never find, find the culprit. Yeah, and, that could, and, that, and then that could have knock-on effects, that they never feel safe in their own home anymore and things like that. All kinds of stuff. Karma literally is just talking about cause and effect, not revenge. Yeah. Yes, you. I can understand why people would like to think that um, something bad might happen. Now, something bad might happen to me because I now have a psychological profile where I'm a revengist. And so what happens is I got away with it this time, and the next time somebody irritates me, I take that another step further. And then it might end up that I do get beaten up by some big bloke that sees me doing something Pitting down a wall <laughs> but 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 that would be incidental and i'll give you a great example um or, or two or three shall i of, of that um murderous dictators more often than not don't get their comeuppance they die in old age still in power joseph stalin Joseph Stalin and, and Mao Zedong in the last century are the best examples of it. The most murderous tyrants of our times. Um, Stalin killed 20 million of his own people. And I used to think, that, oh, that was a bit rough, well, a bit harsh. Until I found out that Mao killed 50 million of his. And that's before we start talking about the famines that Mao instigated from the Cultural Revolution and so on and so on. So, yeah... Uh, how did he die? Did a howling mob come and rip him out of his house and, and string him up by, you know, with piano wire like happened to Mussolini? No, it didn't, did it? He died of old age. Stalin was revered in death. Yeah, that, that is true. So let's get on to this concept of karma. And it starts, and I, and I like what, what uh, he quotes here with Mabel Collins on Light on the Path because to me it was a good image. So she says, Consider with me that the individual existence is a rope which stretches from the infinite to the infinite and has no end and no commencement. Neither is it capable of being broken. This rope is formed of innumerable fine threads which, lying closely together, form a thickness. And then he's got some dots. And remember that the threads are living, uh, are like electric wires, more are like quivering nerves. But eventually the long strands, the living threads, which in their unbroken continuity form the individual, pass out of the shadow into the shine. This illustration presents but a small portion, a single side of the truth. It is less than a fragment, yet dwell on it. By its aid, you may be led to perceive more. What is necessary first to understand is not that the future is formed by any separate acts of the present, but the whole of the future is an unbroken continuity with the present, as the present is with the past. In the plane, from one point of view, the illustration of the rope is correct. So I liked that because what it said to me is when we're, this is that concept that things don't happen in time, they're just the past, present, future are all lying together and entwined with one another. They're not even necessarily lying one beside each other. They're entwined with one another, and you, you, you are, uh, your life is part of that entwinement of the rope. So when we're looking at when we get a bit further on, we're looking at the concept of karma. It's just where you are in in relation to the threads in the rope as to what happens. And I think Uspensky puts it really well immediately after he that does. quote. After that quote, and he says that the passages quoted shows that the idea of karma 
developed in remote antiquity by Hindu philosophy, embodies the idea of the unbroken consecutiveness of phenomena. Let's think about that. The unbroken connectiveness of phenomena. Each phenomenon, no matter how insignificant, is a link of an infinite and unbroken chain extending from the past into the future, passing from one sphere into another, sometimes manifesting as physical phenomena, sometimes hiding in the phenomena of consciousness. Now that, ladies and gentlemen, is a great description of what karma is. And that's exactly what was understood when this was written down in, well, as he says, in antiquity, a very long time ago in India. It's, this is, this is what karma actually is. And if you understand a, a more modern phrase, the butterfly effect, that is what's being described uh, in part as well. The idea that a butterfly fluttering its wings here moves the molecules of air underneath that wing, which has a knock-on effect and blah, blah, blah. By a series of chain reactions, something phenomenal happens in another part of the world entirely. That everything is part of this unbroken chain of cause and effect. It's the, you know, we, this modern phrase, and there is a movie of the same name, the, the butterfly effect as well. So that's truly what karma is. It's got nothing to do with it coming back to you. When the butterfly flutters its wings in the butterfly effect, this chain reaction that starts with the butterfly fluttering its wings, which moves the air beneath the wings, which moves another, you know, other molecules of air until this happens, that, and, and the chain could even get bigger, it could get smaller, it could go into hiding, it could come out. The butterfly itself doesn't feel that coming back to bite it on the ass. The, bu- the butterfly <laughs> would be completely, completely unaware of what it's caused. I, I think it's a bit like, some fuddled old old pensioner that still insists that it's fit to drive a car goes on the road and then says, I've never had an accident in my life. Um, but what they never do is look in their mirrors to see the chaos and disaster that's gone on behind <laughs> that they're leaving in their wake. Like that, that cartoon, Mr. Magoo. Do you remember that? Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> exactly Magoo. like Mr. Magoo. Yeah, I've never had a... <laughs> But it's a bit, you know, it's a, it's a bit like that. The car, the karma happens, you know, you know, you, but it doesn't necessarily, you don't necessarily see the results of what you cause. It doesn't, like I say, it doesn't come back to bite you necessarily. Yeah. And if it does, if it, if it does, that's just, um, the way that it goes. It, it, it's not intended to do that. It's not like, it's not like flicking an elastic band you know, where it comes back. You pull the elastic band and it snaps back into place. You know, I pull the elastic band and I stretch it and it comes back to bite me when I let go and it flicks onto my fingers and, and it hurts a little bit. It's not like that. So I think Spensky's done it really well there. I, I think so. And I think the next bit he talks about, next uh, paragraph, is, is it further develops this idea in it that really, really makes it clear. Um, he says... If we regard karma from the standpoint of our theory of time and space of many dimensions, then the connection between the distant events will cease to be wonderful and incomprehensible. If events most distance from one one another in relation to time touch one another in the fourth dimension, this means that they are proceeding simultaneously as cause and effect and the walls dividing them are just an illusion which our weak intellect cannot cannot conquer. Things are united not by time, but by an inner connection, 
and inner correlation, and time cannot separate those things which are inwardly near, following one from another. That's it. That's good, isn't it? I think that explains karma, that they're not... That they may appear like separate events to us because of our dimensional time concepts of how we can how we are in this world, but in reality, they they're connected to each other in another dimension. They they they're happening almost like when you you hit the ball with the cue stick. You know, you're hitting it; it moves. Absolutely. It's um. It might look like something else from another point of view, but they're, they're, they're exactly one thing causing another. Yeah, I'm, I'm, well, I, I don't know. if you Have you got something more you want to talk about with that? Nope. He does say, The hidden activity of events becomes comprehensible to us. We understand that the events must become hidden in order to preserve for us the illusion of time. Yeah. We can't, we can't function any other way. We need to function with... We have to have this linear, this linear idea of time, yes. In, in, yeah, for the, doesn't for, mean for the, it's real, but it's for the, helpful. For the illusion of phenomena to give us an experience, we have to also have the illusion of time. Otherwise, everything would look as though it stood still, and we would see the past, present, and future all the same. Well, we wouldn't be able to, but it's, you know, we would have to be able to see the past, present, and future at the same time, which means that we wouldn't be having the experience that we are having. So we have to have all four of those, we have to have all the illusions together. The 3D illusion of phenomena and the, um, whether it's fourth dimensional or not, but we have to have the illusion of time also present. Linear time, that is. Yes, yes. Otherwise we wouldn't be, what would be the point of being here doing this? What about this? I, I, do, I do love this, this little uh, para. We know this. Know that the events of today were the ideas and feelings of yesterday, and the events of tomorrow are lying in someone's irritation, in someone's hunger, in someone's suffering, and possibly still more in someone's imagination, in someone's fantasy, in someone's dreams. I love that. That, I that do, I, that's to me, is power. To me. Yep. Yeah. That says we are in control of our experience. I know, and then he follows it up by saying, we know all this, yet nevertheless our positive science obstinately seeks to establish correlations between visible phenomena only, i.e. to regard each visible or physical phenomenon as the effect of some other physical phenomenon only, which is also visible. This tendency to regard everything upon one plane, the unwillingness to recognize anything outside of that plane, horribly narrows our view of life, prevents our grasping it in its entirety, and taken in conjunction with the materialistic attempts to account for the higher as a function of the lower, appears as the principal impediment to the development of our knowledge, the chief cause of the dissatisfaction with science, the complaints about the bankruptcy of science, and its actual bankruptcy in many of its relations. Even in 1920, well actually 12 when he wrote this, um, Spensky and other people in the world were seeing the religion, this new religion of science, as the fake that it is. Um, he was able to write that in 1912. A hundred years ago, over over a hundred years ago. Yeah, yeah. I, I, yeah. And, and that hasn't changed. What has changed is 
that very mu very much fewer people are willing to see and accept that now the programming has that's happened in the last hundred years of the mass of people has been so great that we've told people that they're clever. They go through the prescribed curriculum in our schools and we tell them that they're clever when they come out. And they believe that too, like they believe everything else. So they don't want to believe anything different. Well, here's, here's a, another little something that, that's come to my mind. If we are economic men and we are looking at you know, being consumer, producer, we've also got this concept that if we work hard, we'll make all that money and we can buy all those things that we want to consume that we've been, but, you know, we, we become able to, to have the success, the, the uh, material things. Um, so if, if, it, if we thought beyond that to say that the cause and effect didn't lie in this plane, that you could change things by the way you think, that would screw that up, wouldn't it? Because then you'd be able to manifest well, the things you want without buying into the working hard to get the money to build your way up the, the ladder. Well, I always I always like the work work your you know work hard to build up the ladder. Let's say as a young man you want a McLaren P1 sports car. I say the P1; it's undrivable uh, if you're really pushing it. But um, let's say that's what you want, and and uh, you know, or a Lamborghini or whatever. And at 25. Boy, that would be cool, wouldn't it? So you work hard and you give up your life and you have no life and suddenly you realise you've achieved the kind of success in your 50s that allows you to, you know, you own a great house and, and everything else is going and now, now's the time. And there you are, some fat middle-aged bloke with his air receding, <laughs> sitting in that Lamborghini. Is that, does the Lamborghini, do you think, feel the same to you now? That the feeling you had for it you've lived an illusion and you've wasted a lot of your life getting to this point where you can now have something that you desire we should also understand that you know our, our desires are allowed to change yeah yeah that that is true if you why it, was it worth wasting it not experience a life and and working so hard to eventually have what you thought was your great desire but honestly what one of the things that's great, if you if you want to drive a, a high performance super super sports car on the you know on the roads, there's only one reason you can do that, and that's to impress other people. And if you're a young man, probably to impress young women. Um, so having one when you're a middle aged fat bloke in his fifties, you, you actually almost become a caricature. <laughs> uh, by the way, but by the way, I'm not I'm not a fat bloke, um, but. Should I win the lottery tonight, I shall be going out and having that McLaren because I frankly don't care how I look. <laughs> I want yeah, one. well, you, you, you don't have any problem being a caricature, Pete. I don't, saying? actually. I, <laughs> I really I don't. I don't. No. Because I, 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 actually, I actually do want the McLaren. <laughs> but most people don't. Most people do have that experience where they, they find that it's later in life that having, having worked so hard, they, they look back and they feel... They haven't really lived a life, but they've worked hard and they're now older in life. They've achieved the things they want to achieve. But somehow the shine's been taken off the things that were very shiny when they were young and they didn't achieve them then. It does happen. So from from the Spensky point of view, I think what he's saying here is that if you if you if you put your ladder up against that wall and you climb up the ladder, maybe maybe the thing is that that you've run the wrong wall. 
Well, the, the wall, both the wall and the ladder are illusions. That's right. But you could, he's not, I don't think he's saying don't have a great life, don't have your McLaren, don't have all those things. Not at all. But what I'm he's thinking not, he's saying He's not saying that. That. That, was, that was just a, an observation of going to work. Look, what he would say is that don't be fooled by the illusion. Surely he would, he would say that don't waste your life because you can think a different life and then you can have a different life. That's exactly right, and that's what he's saying. He's he's saying that if you're buying into the the concept of economic man, science yeah. doesn't want you to see outside of this cause and effect. Work hard, get what you, what you want. A cause and effect stuff. Mm. Because if you think outside of that, and you can say, "Hang on, the way I think will will put me onto a different rope, and I'll entwine myself into different experiences." of past, present and future, and all I have to do is master that, then you're out of the program. You're out of that you economic man. Um, Which is the great fear of the... This is the great fear of the establishment, isn't it? If if, if enough right. people dis, have come to this realisation, uh, and Uspensky was well aware of this, and this is, I think this is one of the reasons he wrote this book, because he does want... He does care enough of a humanity to, to want us to, to step out of that of the trap, I, I I do believe that that's and to realize that that it it is possible. We all have thoughts. We all can master our thoughts. We can, you know, this this is not something that's out of our reach. This is not something that uh, is only a theory and analogy, and but you can't actually fathom it. This is this is uh, this is within our in our reach. This is something we can do with what we've got. I I, I love that. You really, and I love this because he he really does. You know, we're not we're not um, in any form using abstractions to put words into Spensky's mouth here. And I'd just love to read this bit. Consider the street of a great city in all its details. An enormous diversity of facts will result, but how much is hidden underneath these um, facts of that which is impossible to see at all? What desires? passions, thoughts, greed, covetousness, how much of suffering, both petty and great, how much of deceit, falsity, how much of lying, how many invisible threads, sympathies, antipathies, interests, bind this street with the entire world, with all the past and with all the future. If we realise this imaginatively, then it will become clear that it is impossible to study the street by that which is visible alone. It is necessary to plunge into the depths. The complex and enormous phenomena of the street will not reveal its infinite noumenon, which is bound up both with eternity and with time, with the past and with the future, and with the entire world. I love that. That is, because yeah, that, that is. puts it in a nutshell. You walk down any big city street, and all you see is the shop fronts and the buildings and the windows. If that's if you bother to look up, you'll perhaps see you know windows above the shop yeah. fronts and, and what have you. Uh, and that's and that's only the beginning. Everything that's going on, the people that come and go, not the people who are permanently on that street. I mean, who's permanently ever on a street? But the people who come and go, and what they bring to that street, and what they take from that street, and what their paths are that are entwined. It it just illustrates beautifully the fact that there is much more than what we experience with our five senses. Absolutely. And we, we know everyone, everyone will have experienced 
you go uh, to a place and the vibrancy or the life that you feel being out and about, which you don't get watching a movie or sitting at home reading a book necessarily. It's about that experience, immersing yourself mm. in that that energy, that uh, and the thoughts. You know, all those thoughts of people and those desires, and you know, they're palpable in many ways. Um, you can tell when when a place is in depression. You can tell when a place is, you know, like party party central without seeing it. What do we say that that, that places have a vibe, and you know they what do. that vibe is, whether it's positive, negative, blah blah blah. I love something else here. He's put the nearest approach to truth, which is possible for a man. Is contained in the saying, everything has an infinite variety of meanings, and to know them all is impossible. And you're going to say, well, hang on, surely everything's possible. But he goes on to say, in other words, truth, as we understand it, i.e. the finite definition, is possible only in a finite series of phenomena. In an infinite series, it will certainly become its own opposite. I love that, and oh I, when, God, I, when that I read that, so... I thought, "Yeah, that just makes so much sense." That 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 because infinite includes the opposite. And as he as he rightly points out, this is something that was understood by a, another one of the great European philosophers, Hegel, who who said, "Every idea extended into infinity becomes its own opposite." Yeah, and he's dead right. In this change of meaning is contained the cause of the incomprehensibility to man of the noumenal world. The substance of a thing, i.e. the thing in itself, contains an infinite quantity of meanings and functions of something which it is impossible to grasp with our mind. In other words, truth as we understand it, i.e. the finite definition, is possible only in the finite series of phenomena. In the infinite yep, series, right. it will certainly become its own opposite. That, yeah, that, but yeah. I, I'm just saying that oh. says that truth is also not true. So yeah. what we think is true is also not true. Well, basically, it's, it's, it's destroying dualism again. Because what we yeah. say is, the, is, is truth is only true if something else is false, if the opposite is false. But what we are saying now is that something becomes its exact opposite when it's taken to an infinite series. So so the opposite is also true. <laughs> the only thing that is true is the whole thing. The, the the two what we what we see what we what we see as two opposites is the actual truth. Everything else is just an illusion or or something that we think is the truth and we're wrong. And it's it's relative to our knowledge and understanding at the time. And he he does point that out. He says this means that all knowledge is relative. We can never grasp all the meanings of any one thing because in order to grasp them all, it is necessary to grasp the whole world with all the variety of meanings contained in it. And I love, I love, I love the occult saying. By the way, you know, used, we, throughout this, we're using the word occult. Occult means secret. That's all it means. Yes. People think it means black magic or magic or this, oh, that, and the other. Yeah. It, it literally means secret, hidden, occult. So Which occult is what? investigation is what, what it is. Um, but I love this quote, which is an occult quote. Uh, he says, the light, light on the path says, you will enter the light, but you will never touch the flame. Yeah. 
that, and that's what he uses. That's what he uses to then say what you just read. You know, this means that all knowledge is relative. Which is why true is only true based on your your. Well, your your perspective of it, at, yeah. Well, your perspective at that moment of investigating it. You may find yourself in another position looking at something from a different perspective when what you what you perceive to be the truth previously now isn't. It's called changing your mind when faced with a different fact. <laughs> yes, but but it also it, it also explains why this revenge concept of karma is is impossible to be true because what the cause and effect the way that you see that cause and effect is based on your perception your knowledge of what what your understanding of it is um and so what someone might look at and say haha that was revenge another person might go wasn't that a great opportunity we never saw that that until that happened that there was potential in something else like you just you just don't Nothing is definitive. No, not at all. In no way. Yep, yep. It's it's the uh, it's like that that old joke that the guy's talking to his mate and he's you know he says how have you been? He says oh I've had a bit of an accident. He said oh really? He says yeah. He said I fell out of a plane. And the guy goes what? He fell out of a plane? That's bad. He said no, that was good because uh, just where I fell out of the plane there was this huge haystack right underneath me. He says, well, that's good. He says, well, no, that was bad because there was a pitchfork in the haystack. <laughs> he says, oh, that's bad. He says, no, that was good. I missed the pitchfork. <laughs> and he says, that's great. He says, no, that's bad. He says, I missed the haystack. <laughs> For God's sake. But that's that's how it is. Different, different. You have to know the whole story before you can actually come to any form of idea about it. And even that might not be the truth because then you might find another form of the story. But as Bensky's saying, that, that that is in itself is also impossible because there is an infinite number of stories. Yeah, I know. And that's that to me that that that, that, that actually does sense. away. Yeah, it does make sense. Of course, it is. So what we're saying is, um, why would you try to investigate the infinite? And he is saying that phenomena is finite, noumena is infinite, an infinite, and so the noumena is the the hidden. Yeah, but you can only experience you can only experience numinous the numinous. What you can't do is know it. Yes, you can experience it through the phenomena. Um, if I'm reading it right, he says the principal difference between phenomenal and numinal aspects of the world is contained in the fact that the first one is always limited, always finite. It includes those properties of a given thing which we can generally know as phenomena. The second, the numinal aspect, is always unlimited always infinite and that again goes to say that this concept of past present and future how you can change even the past and the and the future and the present uh, it makes sense because the unlimited possibilities they only become limited in the way they unfold in the phenomena that you experience from them which you know with with our work on on manifesting that just hundred percent agrees with how how it is possible to change and and to get things you want through well through various things but thought being the first thing the the it's not the last thing uh, there are two paragraphs after it but it, uh, almost as a tailpiece but the the last um, paragraph that describes um, this chapter Bespensky says all that is highest to which we shall come in the understanding of the meaning, the significance 
of the soul of any phenomenon will again have another meaning from another still higher standpoint in still broader generalization, and there is no end to it. In this is the majesty and the horror of infinity. I love that last line because it, it just goes to show that one's the opposite of the other and in, infinity is the opposite and the, well, it is the thing and it's opposite all, all at once. Yeah, well, you can never know anything uh, in, from an infinite series. You can, only, you can only look at one part of it and say, I know that bit. It doesn't mean you know the whole thing. Because he's saying there's always something bigger. However high you think you've gone, oh, look at me, I'm so spiritual, and I, I'm looking at the world from a new perspective now, and it's this. Well, something from a higher perspective is looking down on you and saying, no, it's this. And yet even further, something from an even higher one, and he's saying that this is an infinite series. Yeah. And, that, and there it is, it never ends. So from a, the point of view of how this would, how this helps us, navigate our way through this world i think it comes down to it just goes to show that that the the trick isn't looking at the puppet and being the puppet the, the trick is influencing the puppeteer to to change or, or be or becoming the puppeteer rather than the puppets you know you transform yourself from puppet to puppeteer so his very last paragraph says is basically our view of things change with a new method of knowledge a new consciousness so, therefore, beyond our view of things, another view is possible, a view, as it were, from another world, from over there, from the other side. Now, over there does not mean some other place, but a new method of knowledge, a new consciousness. And should we regard phenomena not as isolated, but bound together with intercrossing chains of things and events, we would begin to regard them not from over here, but from over there. And to which I would ask, but then regarding them from over there instead of over here, isn't that just as bad? We're still only looking at it from, from one point. I think, I think what he probably wanted us to understand is that we, at some, in some way, we'd have to regard them from both places simultaneously, over there and over here simultaneously, to really get the truth of it. And we know that we can't do that. I, the idea of the truth of infinity being reachable from... Uh, a, a finite uh, standpoint is something that he's just said we can't do. And one of the things I think he's warning us against is to even try to investigate that until we're, we're at a position, a perspective where we can. We're certainly not from here. And, uh, and I guess he's also saying that it's not really necessary. No, it isn't necessary, is it? We wouldn't have a life otherwise if we did that. Exactly so. Oh, there are things we can do... And, and he's talking about it in this chapter, starting that, that conversation that, you know, we have thoughts, they're outside of this reality and they are part of something that influences this reality. So we have something we can work with. There's no point in getting all carried away with what, what if, where and all that higher stuff of infinite, infinite to, to um, because we can do nothing with it. It's, it's too, too complex for our, our our brains but we don't need to because we've got thoughts and we we can work from that point of view that's what i think this chapter is saying yeah well we're, we're managing um quite well without it so yeah but we're not stuck with 
the default position. And I, and I think that's what positivistic science is saying. Your default position is you do this, that happens, and then you just go along in this linear sequence of events, one thing knocking on to the other. And he's and saying, yeah, well, that's not the way to look at it because you can step out of that and you can see the cause is not happening on that plane. So if you understand yeah. the cause, or even if you know the cause is elsewhere, even if you know it's elsewhere. Yeah. You, don't, you don't have to know where it is. You, you just have to know that there is something else behind it that's right which gives you the opportunity to do something different yeah yeah to asking the question is there something more that chapter that really has stuck a dagger into the heart of positivism and scientific positivism is very very valuable well Spensky, thank you for this chapter yeah, i was great i'm looking forward to chapter 14 onwards, oh, well, which I, you know, I love this book, as we know. Um, even even the first half of this book, I think, has well, had something for me, but this this is where it's all at. This is where this book comes to life and uh, brings us just so many gems. So thanks so much, Pete, for this marathon chapter. I know it was. <laughs> so thanks again, and uh, we'll see you next week. And thanks so much for listening, and we look forward to your company next week for Chapter 14.